It's been a long seven-year battle, going from Jericho, sweeping southward and then northward, and Joshua has captured the land. The fighting is over. It's finally time for the people of Israel to claim their inheritance. We've moved from the exciting war story to the land grant. I know you're all happy to be here. <laughs> so I know these next 10 chapters are going to seem a little bit dry. Lists and lists of boundary markers. Um, this river here, that wadi over there, this mountain. Lists and lists of cities that we no longer have any idea where they were. It's going to seem difficult, all the boundary markers. I have to confess to you, um, Ed and I have owned six houses in our marriage, and I have never once looked at the boundary markers in my own real estate contract. So let's put ourselves in Israel's sandals for just a minute, though. Imagine you'd never had a home of your own. Your parents were slaves in Egypt. You grew up homeless, living in tents in the wilderness, moving what seemed to be aimlessly through the wilderness for all of your life. Your, then your husbands and your fathers and your brothers fought a seven-year war, and you still lived in a tent, but this time your tent was in enemy territory. And finally, you're going to get the inheritance that the Lord your God had promised to Abraham so many hundreds of years ago. Imagine your excitement. What will my house look like? Will there be a meadow where I can graze my sheep? Is there an orchard or a vineyard? Oh, look, there's a lake on our territory. I wonder if it's got fish. Imagine how you must have felt finally getting your own home. Israel had achieved their dream, a land and a home of their own. I know by now most of you have realized the importance of the word land in Joshua. Remember the Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, that don't use capital letters and don't use punctuation. So when the Lord wants to emphasize something, the human writers can't write it in all caps like we would, or underline it, or put four exclamation points at the end of a sentence. They use repetition for emphasis. And in Joshua, we see this. The word land, referring to the promised land, is used 85 times in the book of Joshua. We see inheritance or inherit more than 50 times and possess or possession at least 25 times. So the most important thing to the author of Joshua is not all of the exciting battles. It's the land. The land the Lord is giving to the people of Israel to possess as their inheritance. Why do you think the land is so important? Well, I can think of several reasons. First of all, this is a legal document for the people of Israel, like a real estate contract. Well, actually, it's more like a rental agreement. The Lord owned the land. Israel was being allowed to use the land that the Lord owned under certain conditions. In the land, we see God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. So we learn that God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. In the land, God's people and God's word will be protected until the fullness of time when God brings forth his Messiah, the seed promised to Adam and Eve, the blessing to the nations promised to Abraham, the prophet like himself promised to Moses, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He came from the land and the people of Israel. And the land was a teaching tool. The dirt and the lakes and the trees were important, but the land was meant to point Israel to something greater than that. The land of Israel was the second iteration of the kingdom of God on earth. The first was the Garden of Eden. In Eden, Adam and Eve had rest and peace and work to do. They were God's people, living in God's place, under God's authority, enjoying God's presence and his blessing. That's the definition of the kingdom of God. Until Genesis 3, when they chose to ignore God's word, his one command, and to rely on their own understanding. Immediately, we see the rest and peace evaporate. They're driven out of the garden, and the next story recorded for us is a murder, a brother killing a brother. Relationships have been destroyed. The relationship between man and God, the relationship between husband and wife, the relationship between brothers. And as the story ripples out, we see all relationships have been destroyed. In one of the sermons I listened to this week, the pastor pointed out that since mankind left Eden, our history has been one of wandering and warfare. Mankind has been searching for rest and peace since that time. And rest and peace is what God offered in the Promised Land. As the people of Israel stood on the east bank of the Jordan River, ready to cross over into the land, Moses spoke to them three times about the rest they would enjoy in the Promised Land. Joshua spoke of rest. Last week in Joshua 11.23, we read, So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So let's talk about rest. Rest for Israel was not inactivity. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, Israel had lots to do in the land. Farming, building, raising livestock, raising children. Rest was something deeper than that for Israel. Rest for Israel would be living in the kingdom of God. They were God's people, the physical descendants of Abraham, living in God's place, the physical land of Israel. Under God's authority, obeying all of the laws they had been given in the Torah, enjoying God's presence in the tabernacle and later in the temple, and enjoying God's blessing for obedience. Do you remember the long list of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience? God offered them blessing. This for Israel would be rest and peace, a rest from wandering and warfare. But it was a dream that Israel sadly never achieved. So in chapter 13 in this week's reading, we get kind of a preview of why that was. In chapter 13, we find three groups of people. We find two and a half tribes who settled on the east side, the wrong side of the Jordan River. We find nine and a half tribes who settled within the borders of the Promised Land, and we find the Levites. So let's look at these three tribes, three groups of people. We'll look at the Transjordan tribes first. Verse 8 identifies them. The other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites, and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them, 
beyond the Jordan eastward as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. I hope you read Numbers 32 this week, which describes what happened and why these tribes had settled there. Israel was standing on the border of the Promised Land. They'd been here once before, about 38 years ago, and the tribes had refused to enter the Promised Land. The wrath of God fell on them, and they spent 38 years wandering in the desert. But finally, they're back on the border of the Promised Land. The Lord had given them victory over the two kings of the land they're standing on, Og and Sihon, who had ruled here. So two and a half of the tribes looked around and saw the Transjordan land was good for livestock. They happened to have a lot of livestock. Seemed good to them. So they decided they'd stay there, outside the borders of the Promised Land. They said to Moses, basically, we don't want to go. They actually said, do not take us across this Jordan. Well, Moses had a minor meltdown because he'd been in that situation before, and he, was, he had no idea what God would do this time if the tribes refused to enter the land. He was afraid it would get contagious and nobody would enter. So the two and a half tribes come back with a deal. We'll leave our livestock and our children here where they'll be protected, but the warriors will cross with you and fight for Israel. And Moses agreed. He said if they would fight with Israel until the land was conquered, that they could have this land east of the Jordan. This Transjordan land is always referred to in the Bible as the land that Moses gave them. There isn't any record I could find that Moses had consulted with the Lord. And it's never called the land that the Lord gave them, as the promised land is. And it's that way because... God had promised to all of Israel another Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey, where they and all of their livestock would be bountifully provided for. Israel was a land with defensible borders, the Jordan River on one side, the Mediterranean Sea on the other, mountains in the north, and a big old desert in the south. It was a protected area. The Transjordan was not. It was a land where Israel could live in fellowship with their brothers and in fellowship with God. That's where the tabernacle would be. That's where all the sacrifices would be given, all the celebrations would be had. The Transjordan was not. It was none of these things. But the two and a half tribes saw the land east of the Jordan, and it looked good to them. They desired it, and they asked permission to take it. They actually refused their inheritance in the promised land. They were willing to live outside of God's plan for their lives because they were relying on their sight and their feelings and their own understanding, not trusting in God's word that he would provide for them. We see this pattern all over the Bible. Eve saw the forbidden fruit. She desired it, and she took it, despite what God had said. David saw Bathsheba. He desired her, and he took her, despite what God had said. It never turns out well. It didn't turn out well for the Transjordan tribes either. They nearly provoked a war in Joshua 22 on their way home to their land east of the Jordan. They become selfish and isolated. Deborah actually calls them out in her song in Judges because they refuse to come and help Israel. They're constantly fending off attackers. They don't have natural borders. And there's still a lot of ites living all around them. 
First Chronicles says, they whored after the gods of the people of the land. They fell into blatant idolatry. And eventually they were taken into exile by the Assyrians and they never returned to their land. They never found that rest and peace that we were all looking for. So what can we learn from these two and a half tribes? Well, the people of God are called to be people of the ear, not people of the eye. By people of the ear, I mean this. We are people who need to hear God's word. We need to hear what he said to us in his word about himself, about his character, about his plans. We need to hear in God's word what he said to us about ourselves. And we need to hear warnings and promises and things that he's forbidden. And we need to live by what we've heard, not by what we see around us, not by what our feelings tell us, not what, by what circumstances we see, not by what seems right in our own eyes. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight, to hear God, to believe him, and then to act on what he said. This is what the Transjordan tribes did not do. So then we have a second group, the nine and a half tribes who actually do settle in the promised land. I don't know if you noticed a tension between what you read last week and what we read this week about the land. Last week in Joshua 11.23, we read, so Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord spoke to Moses. And this week in 13.1, it says, now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and I'm just going to skip over that part. And there remains yet very much land to possess. And it's followed by a long list of places that they still need to possess. So has Joshua taken the whole land, or is there very much land left to possess? Which is it? Well, the answer is it's both. Joshua had taken military control of the whole land. He had defeated all of the kings and all of the armies in the land. He had taken possession of the major cities. He controlled the highways. He was in control of all of Israel. But there were still pockets of Canaanites living there in small towns and villages, in isolated homesteads. There were still quite a few Canaanites living in the land, ordinary people. And Israel was commanded by God to drive them out. The Lord promised Israel over and over again, I myself will drive them out. But just as in all the battles Israel had fought so far, Israel had to act, and then God would guarantee their success. It was a certainty that the Canaanites would be driven out if Israel would act. But Israel didn't act. We read over and over again, the people of Israel did not drive them out. You saw that phrase this week. You'll see it again four times in Joshua. It's also a repeated theme in the book of Judges. In chapter 1 of Judges, we're told nine times in 14 verses that various tribes did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in their land. We're even told that the Amorites did drive out the tribe of Dan from part of their land. So why didn't Israel fully claim their inheritance? We're not told. Maybe they were just tired of war. 
They were probably distracted by other things like plowing fields and building barns and raising families. Several of the tribes put the Canaanites to forced labor, so it was profitable for them, for the Canaanites, to remain in the land. But they didn't obey the word of the Lord. Let's call it complacency. The men of Israel decided that what they had was close enough to what God had promised and to what God had commanded. They weighed the cost of complete obedience and decided not to put in the effort. Maybe that's putting it too strongly. Maybe it wasn't a decision that they made. Maybe they just drifted into complacency by putting it off for a day and then another day, which turned into a week and then a month and then a year, until finally it never happened. Both Moses and Joshua warned Israel that the remnant of the Canaanites would turn them to idolatry. And eventually, it would cause the Lord to drive them out of the land. And that is exactly what happened to Israel. So there's a lesson in here for us as well. Unlike Israel, our enemies are not people. I don't know any Canaanites. And if I did, I'm not called to exterminate them. I'm called to love them and share the gospel with them. Our enemies aren't people. They're fleshly desires. They're worldly influences. They're the schemes of the devil. And we are called to be in constant battle against these enemies, to drive them out. I don't know about y'all, but I get busy and distracted. And I often find myself falling into into complacency about these things, which the Lord has told me to eliminate from my life. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Do not be conformed to this world. Submit to God and resist the devil. These are commands. They're not suggestions. The Lord has given me all the weapons I need for the fight, and he's promised to fight for me. We're called to battle sin, to drive it out, not to earn our salvation, but because we already have our salvation. We're called to fight and not become complacent the way that Israel did. Then we have the third group of people. We have the Levites. Verse 14 says, To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord of Israel are their inheritance. And verse 33 says, The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. So Levi was to receive offerings. As people brought their offerings to the Lord, Levi received a part of the meat from the offerings. Numbers 18.4 tells us, in addition to that, they got a tithe from Israel, 10% of all the wealth of Israel. But they didn't receive a tribal allotment of land. Now, that doesn't mean they had no place to live. Each tribe was commanded to give cities to the Levites. There were 48 cities in all scattered throughout Israel. So the Levites owned 48 cities and the surrounding pasture lands. But they were scattered among all the other tribes. And there's a reason for that. The Levites were to act as judges, bringing the word of God to bear on difficult court cases. And they were to act as teachers. They were the people in the land who would teach the tribes about the Lord. 
they had a special job. They got to spend their time learning about the Lord and teaching about the Lord, being the Lord's representatives in the land. So how did the Levites do with their inheritance? Apparently not very well, or at least not very long. In the book of Judges, Joshua's death is reported at the age of 110. And the next couple verses say this, And all that generation, that means talking about the generation who took the promised land, also were gathered to their fathers, that is, they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. One generation later, one generation, where were the Levites? Why weren't they teaching about the Lord and what he had done for Israel? In Nehemiah, in chapter 9, Nehemiah is speaking to the Lord about the time of the judges, and he says, they, meaning Israel, cast your law behind their backs. They deliberately threw away the law of God. Again, where were the Levites? They were supposed to be applying the law of God, apparently not doing their jobs. So here's an application for us. The New Testament calls believers a royal priesthood. Like the Levites, we are custodians of God's word. We're to know and live by God's word. Like the Levites, we're to represent God in our communities. We're to be salt and light in a dark world. And like the Levites, we're to teach God's word. Because just like Israel, we're only one generation away from the chaos of everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. And if you look around you today at all, I think you'll see it. So in conclusion, Israel had failed to achieve this rest and peace that they'd been offered in the promised land. And we saw the reason for it wasn't God. It was not a failure on God's part. He did everything he had promised to them. The failure was Israel's. The rest and peace they so desperately thought, desperately looked for dependent on their hearing the word of God, believing the word of God, and acting on the word of God. And they did not do it. Hebrews 4, 8 and 9 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Joshua was unable to give Israel rest because of the hardness of their hearts. But Hebrews points us to a greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for the Christian now is a person. It's not a place. We rest in following, that is, hearing, believing, and obeying a person, the Lord Jesus. He's given us hearts who can, that can hear and obey what he has to say. Now, I know that in this world, we'll have tribulation. We still struggle with sin. So we don't have perfect rest and peace now. We live in the already, but not yet, kingdom of God. But we also know that we have an inheritance. One day when Jesus returns, there's a place of perfect rest and peace. A place that is the true promised land to which the land of Israel was only pointing. Revelation 21 and 22 
describe this place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. The final and perfect kingdom of God. God's people, the redeemed from the whole world for all of time, who live in God's place, the new creation, the new heaven and new earth that are joined together differently than it is now. Under God's authority, we'll be happy to live under God's authority. There will be no more sin. We'll be like Christ, enjoying God's presence and God's blessing. The true rest and peace that we all long for, the end of wandering and warfare. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are restless, um, and they're restless until they find their true rest in you. Father, I pray that you would help us to apply what we've learned to our lives. We're just as liable as the Israelites were to disbelieve your word and try to carve out our own inheritance to, um, to not do what you've called us to do, to hear and believe and obey you, to drive out things in our lives that need to be driven out, and to be your representatives in the world. Father, um, help us to learn these lessons and apply them to our lives. And we ask this for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.